everybody, to another episode of Overdue Rentals, the podcast where we talk about films that nobody's talking about anymore for whatever reason. I don't know what's wrong with them. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blend's Mike Reyes. And Matt, forgive me for thinking that maybe we haven't done this in a while, but I think this is the best reason to be doing it again because, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Fright Night oh. times two! Because we we got both Fright Nights on the docket tonight, the 1985 original and the 2011 remake. And we have a very special guest that talked to us about it. Uh, Matthew, what is that? that you, you have a look of... Sans, though, Fright Night 2. Yeah, well, judging by the conversation I had with our esteemed guest, author Vera Kurian, who you should be you automatically be reading her book, Never Saw Me Coming, which is available on bookshelves, digital and physical. Uh, based on our conversation, we may have to visit that at some point because it does okay. come up in the, uh, in the discussion. Unfortunately, uh, because of our revolving door schedules, because of the holidays and prestige season, yeah. uh, I had to solo this uh, interview just as Matthew had to solo... Uh, some of our recent sessions as well. But I would like to say that I had you there as a, a sort of phantom co-pilot, just in my heart, helping out. Yeah, I mean, we'll talk a little bit more about our, our own personal feelings again for the films uh, after everybody gets to hear what Vera and you had spoke about. But um, before we jump into that, for those who have never seen Fright Night, you know, the original, that 1985 film, well, 85, right? You just yeah, 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 and I, you know what? I want to safety save that just in case, but I want to say eighty-five. Yeah, I mean it's it's a film about a young boy. Yep, eighty-five uh, in two thousand eleven. A high school student who kind of you know the very generic again. Like we like to be as generic as we can. If you haven't seen the film, uh, but again, spoilers for, for you know coming up for when you talk about it. Uh, who believes his new next door neighbor is a vampire? Uh, and uh, the remake of the night technically same same premise <laughs> yeah yeah but you'll be amazed especially with the details that vera and i actually went into you, there's you'll be amazed how much mileage can be had and with a proper remake that yeah, yeah. that doesn't try to just retread the same scares and like the the big difference well there's one big difference that we'll talk about afterwards but yeah it's just this is a very interesting experiment one that we've definitely wanted to do having like a remake double header and I'm excited for everybody to hear the results. Well, let's hear it. I want to hear what you guys talked about now. Vera Korean, thank you so much for joining me on Overdue Rentals. Um, apologies that Matthew could not be here, uh, but that doesn't mean we cannot have fun. I, I assure you that uh, I assure you you're, you're in good hands and I am capable of pretending to be an adult. Sure. So am I. <laughs> oh well perfect see this the, the show's already starting off brilliantly uh but before we get into this week's rentals because you are giving us our first double feature episode yes. which is exciting beyond belief especially because we're going to be comparing remake versus original yes i wanted to talk about your book never saw me coming sure yeah because i i think the first thing that struck me was the cover yeah, I just randomly saw the cover and it's like, ooh, I yes, this oh, is the I, British cover, but it's very close to the American cover. 
Oh yeah, the colors are a bit different. Yeah, there's a strap line on the British cover. Yeah. Huh. See, it's it's not just Philosopher's Stone versus Sorcerer's Stone anymore. Now we gotta we gotta jazz it up a little. Yeah. But they the British team liked the cover so much from the American version, so that they kept it. So uh, I think it was a really strong cover, and that's why they did that. No, it really is. And just uh, just as strong as the cover is, I love the character of Chloe Sevra. And <laughs> what I really liked was I saw that my library had it on audio. Mm-hmm. So I just gave it a I gave it a world because I read the the synopsis and it's like psychopaths going to school together and they're being picked off slowly. Okay, that's that's a listen for me. And it really helps me to latch onto a book when I have like chores to do around the house. Mm-hmm. So I was more susceptible to doing dishes because I needed to finish this book. Yeah, the the audiobook is great. I mean, I was so happy with the the narrator. I got to pick from five different narrators. Um and I'm so happy that I picked um Brittany Presley, who is the she's she's really funny. Uh and I found myself laughing to the audiobook, even though like clearly I know all the jokes I wrote them. But um <laughs> just her her delivery of the character is so good. Like she perfectly occupies this space where I'm sure millions of people have already come to this conclusion, but I felt like she was the love child between Patrick Bateman and Amy from Gone Girl. Yeah, I mean, I um, I was very influenced by um, Gone Girl. I can just give the elevator pitch for, for the book if readers oh, hadn't heard sure. of it. Sure. Uh, so Never Saw Me Coming is a it's a psychological thriller. Um, it is about a, an incoming freshman named Chloe who is a diagnosed psychopath. And she's entering um, a special program where seven psychopaths can go to college for free in exchange for being in this study, which is a clinical panel study. But what she is really there to do is hunt down and kill a boy from her past. Um, What she doesn't know is that there is someone in town hunting down the seven psychopaths one by one. So she has to decide if she can work with any of the other ones. I, no one could say it better than an author. And that just, that perfectly lays out why I love this book and what brought me to it. And also I'm kind of stymied that I didn't suggest seven psychopaths before we landed on oh, this week's Fold Fright Nights because yeah. maybe that would have been too cute. I think I've, you know, it just occurred to me that it's the same number of psychopaths. I must've seen that movie a hundred years ago, but I don't remember it at all. I know Christopher Walken's in it. Yes. Oh, he he's easily a standout in there, especially yeah. with a, a scene where he's being held at gunpoint and just walking defiance permeates. Maybe I'll rewatch that now that I'm older. I'm going to write that down. You know what? If you have a good enough experience with the show this evening, we may be, keep that one open for you if you want to return. <laughs> I was very excited to see that you had Fright Night open. Oh, we don't have to talk about Fright Night yet if you don't want to, but whenever just whenever i just wanted to to give your book its proper due because i just really just i love when someone debuting in the world of literature can really just sort of smack me in the face with something mm-hmm. and just chloe as a character she's familiar but at the same time it's done in such a way that i was just constantly listening and looking for where this is going and even questioning whether she could be could be this unreliable narrator that actually is a killer yeah and for me when writing the book i had been reading like maybe 10 years of of 
psychological thrillers after Gone Girl, and it was sort of dissatisfied because a lot of them featured sort of hapless women married to mysterious men who are keeping secrets. And I wanted to write like a very intelligent female character who wanted something and would ask probing questions. Um, and that, I mean, all of my fiction is character driven, even though this is like a genre book, but I mean, the character is, I think, really well developed and unintentional. Like, doesn't mean to be funny, but she's, she's quite funny. Um, and a lot of mysteries don't, have humor cozy mysteries do but thrillers tend to not so um i really wanted to write a book that was kind of different than what what's been coming out lately oh yeah i mean i'm still surprised how well i guess i'm not surprised how popular cozy mysteries have become but Mm -hmm. it's it's still something that you see it on a shelf and part of you just has pause and it's like this exists i guess I think it's for then, people who like murder, but they don't. They don't want to. They don't want the the gore or the you yeah, know scary like parts murder. of it. Yes, diet murder, basically. <laughs> uh. <laughs> it explains all of the puns involving bakeries and cats. Yeah, I will say I don't read cozy mysteries, but I do love all the puns. Oh uh, yeah, here for them. Yeah, but absolutely to your to your point, it is. It, it, it's hard for people, I guess, to kind of admit there is that middle ground between salacious thriller and please don't hurt me. And it's even harder to sort of carve that niche out in such a way that, you know, it's, it's entertaining to, to a mass audience. Yeah. And I I do think the book even touches on the fact that our, our entertainment value that we put in murder is a little strange. Like, I mean, I consume a lot of true crime, it is weird that it's a form of entertainment and, and writing about terrible things happening to people is a form of entertainment. But um, I, I mean, I also think the book kind of deals with some of these like more serious issues in the form of something that's like kind of entertaining, but um, thrillers aren't going anywhere. I mean, murder mysteries aren't going anywhere. Oh no, no. And nor are adaptations of them because, you know, we st- we're still waiting for death on the Nile to actually arrive. Uh, has anybody talked to you about optioning Never Saw Me Coming as a, a series or, or a film? Yeah, this got optioned maybe like a month or two after we sold um, the book rights. They actually got their hands on it somehow. Like uh, we didn't send it to them, but they, I guess they were a literary scout. Um, a couple of people were interested, but we went with um, Universal, um, John Davis. So I don't know if it's happening. I mean, they say something like 90% of things that are optioned don't actually come to fruition. I will say that a lot of IP is getting bought up right now, but there's all these platforms. So who knows? Yeah, like I almost could see this becoming a series, but at the same time, I would be interested to see how someone would sort of cleave this down into to maybe two and a half hours yeah they they they're they were interested in it being um a streaming series like a you know along the lines mm-hmm. of you if you've seen that on netflix uh and i i could easily see that working and the, the way that i write is very visual so i think it lends itself to things feeling sort of cinematic um which i think would translate pretty easily to something uh, on a tv Oh yeah, because we're just, it's the golden age of streaming. We're allowed to be cinematic with television and just the difference is you're allowed to have length and breadth. 
yeah, it's kind of an embarrassment of riches right now in terms of TV. Yeah. I mean, did. Can't complain. No, not at all. Especially when there's so many services that some, like Peacock, are kind of still in those early phases where they'll yeah. grab everything they can and just throw whatever against the wall and see what sticks. But yeah. then that's an increased risk of cancellation. Yeah, but I do think that there's been shows that would have never made it on network TV that are so like strange and delightful. I don't know if you've ever seen like Pen15 on Hulu. Like it's, <sighs> That would have never made it on a, on a network show and they were able to do things there that that you couldn't have done anywhere else. So for every one of those, maybe there's five failed shows, but yeah, worth it. So I guess uh, now is a good time to sort of move into the main event because we will be talking about not only 1985's Fright Night, but also the 2011 remake, which I'm, like I said, I'm totally jazzed that you chose to do both Mm -hmm. because very rarely do I find a dichotomy of films where a fan can say they like both. Mm. And I guess to really start us off, how did you first get exposed to Fright Night? So I watched this movie as a child. Uh, <laughs> so it came out in 1985. I probably saw it when I was like eight or nine. Um, and I saw the sequel a couple years later. And then I've seen since seen the movie like many times. Um, I, don't, I don't know if it's a good movie, but it is, I think, a cult favorite uh and so i've i've watched it many times since then name checking the sequel that's that that is dedication right there and i i will just go on record as saying i actually do like that sequel too yeah i do too um it's i think a lot of the same elements i mean it doesn't have chris sarandon in it obviously but he's one of the main reasons i like the first one but you know swap swap the gender (laughs) she's his (laughs) sister or something stupid but quick, we got to make money really quickly. How do we do this again? Uh, okay, uh, cousin, sister, uh, what is a six and a dice? Sister. Okay, yeah, sister. They didn't have to be related, but but whatever. It's fine. It's an enjoyable sequel and like really great uh, costuming with some great 80s hair and, and, and clothes. So I would recommend them both. What was also kind of weird finally like i came to the sequel so many years late and then after watching it it's like wait a minute that psychiatrist looks familiar and if i'm not mistaken that's ernie sabella who's pumba from the lion king oh yeah yeah i mean that's one of those guys who's been in a lot of things i think oh yeah classical that guy yeah (laughs) um but yeah that the the original it does ride a line because it's not exactly, I mean, it's classic because people love it for what it is. It's not classic because, Oh, it's this enduring classic that will forever reach through the spans of time. It's because people like vampire movies and Tom Holland had this thing that was just, it was hip and creative enough, but it still sort of played to the tropes of the time. Yeah. I think it had a good mixture of like, there's some comedy in there um and practical effects which maybe back then were impressive but i I mean i think they're they're pretty decent for what they are um and some really really good performances i think almost everyone 
Well, who would you who would you single out as someone that maybe didn't get the the better end of the spectrum? Um, Amanda Bierce. <laughs> she's she's just not good in this movie. Uh, I feel like she's someone who's perpetually thirty something. Um, I looked this up. So she is twenty seven when when filming this movie, and she's supposed to be a high school student. Um, William Ragsdale, who's Charlie, is twenty four, uh, and. I, I don't know who is doing the wardrobing in this movie, but their idea of a high school student is he's wearing like blazers all the time. <laughs> he has like a tweed <laughs> jacket with leather elbows because I guess that's what high school students wear. That sounds like the high school student that's going to steal the ski lodge. Yeah. And then just uh, Amanda, Amanda Bierce. I mean, maybe she's good in, in other pieces, but she just was kind of over the top in her her delivery um i i ever i would keep everyone else there except for her um and you replace her with a muppet yeah i mean yeah or just kind of a generic <laughs> high school girl would have been you know less distracting than someone who um with her delivery and seemed like she was 30 something uh but yeah, that's that's my only negative note, actually, for the original Fright Night. And when you really look into the subtext of that movie, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe Amy was a late addition and there was maybe a first draft lying out there somewhere where there's more between Ed and Charlie, maybe. Oh, interesting. Uh, that's just me, or maybe that's the way I would rewrite it because it'd be interesting that way because there's always been that sort of sort of I think there's been that sort of read on the original one where Stephen Jeffrey's evil ed and Charlie mm -hmm. are it's kind of like that sort of friendship where it's it's bordering on maybe Ed likes Charlie in a romantic mm -hmm. sense. And mm -hmm. that's why the whole thing with Jerry kind of pays off the way that it does. Yeah, I I can't see a movie back then being willing to have anything kind of homoerotic. Um oh, no. but yeah I mean I think first of all evil is the guy who plays evil and the character in general is, is just like great. Like I feel like a lot of people had a friend like that um, who would also like laugh at inappropriate times and uh, maybe would kind of think it's a good idea to get turned into a vampire. <laughs> but <laughs> I just love his voice and his laugh. I mean, I don't think they could have cast anyone better to play that part. It has always stuck with me since a kid when it, he has his big moment with, uh, with Roddy McDowell with Peter Vincent and he's just pretending to be the mom and just that menace that drips in his voice. Yeah. And I, I like the effect when he, he burns the cross into his forehead. I thought, I thought that was pretty good. Oh yeah. That's, that's plenty. Of, that was probably the money shop for tons of horror magazines. Like Fangoria probably had that as a cover and the world would have been better for it. And yet, you know, going back to the like homoerotic thing, I mean, there's part of the very beginning. So, so Jerry the vampire has this like houseman who lives with him. And at some point Charlie's mom is like looking at him move in and like makes a joke about maybe he's gay or something. And there is kind of this like weird thing of like this uber loyal henchman. I don't know if he's supposed to be like a vampire familiar or like he's like under the thrall of, uh, of Chris Sarandon. But I mean, it, it is a little strange um, I don't know if they were like needing to imply something that, or they just like wanted him to have like extra muscle around the house. 
Yeah, you, you can get away with so much when it comes to a vampire familiar. And you can either go that route or you can go with something like maybe Bram Stoker's Dracula where you've just got Tom Waits going nuts as Renfield. Yeah. Yeah, the the one note I made of the henchman is henchman doesn't have sideburns. <laughs> it was pretty weird. <laughs> and just 80s and like a big underline right underneath it. Yeah, I mean, as and you know, my favorite part of this movie and the reason why I think the the remake fails is is Chris Sarandon and like how great he is in this role in like every possible way. Um, he like most people know him for being Prince Humperdinck in uh, Princess Bride, but I always thought of him as the guy from Fright Night who is like you know, this mixture of like sinister, he was still scary, but he was also charming um, and like occasionally made jokes. Um, or there was this like, I think this movie portrayed really well the idea of the allure of the vampire, you know, where they're, where the scene where they're running away, him and his girlfriend are running away from Jerry and they end up at that club. And all he does is like, look at Amy and she's like immediately enthralled. Um, and they have that weird dance scene. But like you, you totally buy it with him. And also, I don't know how everyone else's wardrobe is terrible, but he has like the best wardrobe, and I want all of his outfits. He's like very well dressed. He's got that like white leather coat with a maroon sweater. He's got all like in the club. He's wearing. I wrote this down too. He changes his his clothes at some point when they're chasing. <laughs> he's chasing them, and puts on a cowl neck dress sweatshirt to go to the club. <laughs> which I loved and <sighs> would buy that cowl neck dress sweatshirt. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, he, he wears it well. And yeah. just, again, that is, that is the power of Chris Sarandon who yeah. again, uh, you, most people think count Humperdinck, but then you've got, uh, why am I blanking on it? Jerry. You've got yeah. Jerry from Fright Night. You've got his character from child's play where he plays like the lone cop that somehow believes the mom. Yeah, And the man definitely does not have luck with vampires after this point because he's in Bordello of Blood. He and is. And he's in the Fright Night remake. And ah. I believe he's taken out in both. Yes, I do. I, I rewatched the remake last week. I didn't know earlier when I first saw it that he, he has a cameo in it where he dies, which I kind of didn't like. I didn't know who he was in Bordello of Blood. I think he was the televangelist that's running the show that like the vampires are kind of manipulating. Oh, to check that out again. Yeah. I mean, I think he's one of those actors who is like handsome, but in a slightly sinister way. So he gets cast in a lot of these roles. Um, he's also the voice of Jack Skellington from uh, nightmare before Christmas. That's right. Um, he doesn't do the singing, one. but he's yeah. the, uh, the voice of him. <clears throat> but um, I think he does, he does it with also, a bit of charm and you know for the that is like one model of the vampire is that there are they also have this irresistible charm which i mean i think that's the version of vampires people like most the like sexy vampire as opposed to the like grotesque yeah although he gets then. grotesque at some parts in this movie when he's his face is like coming out when he's got to, I mean, when he really, when the chips are really down, that's when Jerry Dandridge gets, gets grotesque. But for the most part, this is a movie steeped in glamour, just yeah. sort of drawing the audience into this man. And that might even be why his wardrobe is just so 
immaculate because the world is just kind of plain and kind of eh, 80s. And then he's like 80s. And yeah. Like, and it's kind of exciting, this thing of like you look through your window and there's this like kind of glamorous person next door who might be dangerous. My absolute favorite part of the movie is when um, Charlie brings Peter Vincent over because he thinks, oh, there's a vampire next door and they go inside and he accuses him of being a vampire and Chris Sarandon is eating an apple. Uh, and he kind of, he's kind of being like, how could I be a vampire? I'm eating an apple. <laughs> but apparently the apple eating was um, Chris Sarandon's idea because he was like, well, vampires are kind of like bats and bats like fruit. So I'll, I'll eat this apple. Which I loved. Such a clever ruse. And just, <laughs> you know, I I would love to maybe see a Fright Night if they were ever going to respin this again. And who knows, they probably will. Why not go into Jerry's story and watch him yeah. just go, like make it an anthology where he just goes from town to town and just wreck shop, go somewhere else. Gets involved with uh, high school girls. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, he's probably a lonely figure. Well, yeah, I mean, that's another another one of the classic tropes that they sort of really hammer home with this was Amy's just that sort of long lost love figure to him where he just sees her and he's like, I have to have her for some reason and I will have her for some reason. Yeah, maybe it would maybe I would buy that more if it wasn't like Amanda Bierce and her acting. But like they did the same thing with the Bram Stoker's Dracula where you you didn't need to have the connection between Dracula and Mina. It would just be like maybe like I would have totally bought it if Jerry just wanted her for the sole reason of messing with Charlie. That would have made sense to me. Yeah. But, you know, vampires are kind of sentimental creatures at heart. Apparently. There's always some some girl that they lost at some point who they can't replace, but is always a high schooler for some reason. <laughs> and then, of course, there is... We would be remiss if we did not talk about Roddy McDowell as Peter Vincent, because that is another thing that just really hammered home with me, this eccentric sort of vampire hunter character who's very skeptical at first, and then he just gives us these brilliant reasons why he's not in the game anymore. Yeah. I, I think he's great. I mean, he's funny. He's, you know, kind of this sense that he like, doesn't believe in himself is also kind of interesting. Um, I like that he's kind of an older, an older hero, as opposed to, you know, having someone like, super fit and, and young and like knows karate. He's just like an old dude wearing like a Sherlock Holmes cape. Um, but forming this unlikely friendship with a, with a high schooler, which continues into the sequel. He's good. And then just a juxtaposition in the sequel where it's like, Oh no, no vampires don't exist. No, Charlie, they exist. We fought them. Yeah. <laughs> they break him out of the insane asylum and it takes like two minutes <laughs> <laughs> you know what that that may just have to go on the list now because that's it, it it really is one of those sequels that i don't know how it got lost but it just got lost yeah i think i think it's for anyone listening worth watching it is absolutely ridiculous in between the fashion and the dance scenes and uh rolling yeah, yeah, the bowling. Vampires can bowl, apparently. So look for that big Lebowski fan fiction coming real soon. 
The the only part of either of these movies that actually scared me as a child was the guy who keeps eating insects, and then when his stomach gets ripped open and all the like centipedes come out, I did I didn't like that part. Yeah, uh, practical effects have a wonderful way of scarring a child's mind. Yeah, um, luckily we didn't know to look for anything more realistic, but it, it was certainly terrifying back then to me. Someone doing oh, yeah. insects. <laughs> So moving on to, or moving into the 2011 Fright Night, not that we'll totally, you know, leave 1985 behind because it's kind of, when you talk about that remake and that original energy, it's really easy to weave into them uh, as we've kind of started to sort of creep around the edges of. But what did you first think when they announced, yeah, we're doing Fright Night. Anton Yelkin is the new Charlie. Colin Farrell is the new Jerry. And David Tennant's the new Peter Vincent. I was, okay, to be honest, I don't think the movie should have been remade at all. I, I don't think it needed to be remade. And, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. I mean, I like, um, you know, the, all, all of the actors, well, excepting Colin Farrell, I think are, are good. I mean, I think like Anton, is it Yelton? Is that his last name? I think it's Yelkin. Anton Yelkin. Yelchin. Y- Yelkin. Oh, Yelkin. Yeah. He he's very um he's very likable and like believable. Um, Tony Collette, I just like worship the ground she walks on. Like I like everything yeah. she does. Um, I thought the the girlfriend is a better actress than Amanda Beer, although the bar is low. And I think that the the remake did I think a good thing with the friendship um, between Charlie and Evil where well his name is ed in this movie where it's kind of the like we used to lark together and you left me behind i think that was like a very real high school believable thing um and david Tennant is definitely a different take on um peter vincent and i actually so when i rewatched i didn't know who david Tennant was when i first saw this and now i've seen him in like a million things and i think like he's really funny um i like his it's a he has the same sort of like doesn't believe in himself kind of character, but then basically they like took Peter Vincent and sort of made him like not who is that guy Chris Chris Angel. Chris Angel yeah they made him like Chris Angel which I think is quite funny. Uh, I mean my main issue is with Colin Farrell because I think I think they cast him because he's hot, but I think he he doesn't have a sense of humor in the movie at all. Like there's no funny lines. Um, he doesn't have that kind of like charm that Chris Sarandon had. Uh, you know, at some point he just like, whatever, invites himself over or something, but he's not like charming or funny or interesting. You know, there were, there are scenes in the original Fright Night where Chris Sarandon is like cracking jokes and stuff. And he, you know, he has Peter Vincent over and like totally wins him over. And like, I don't see Colin Farrell doing that. He was just, I think they were trying to go for something like with more traditional scares. Um, with like, you know, like when they do the car chase scene and like creepy thing, he grabbing onto the car and stuff. I think they were going for more traditional, um, you know, kind of jump scare type things than um, the original. But I don't know. What, what did you think? I was surprised with how much I liked it mm-hmm. because I w- I really was hesitant at first, even though. I was I was in the Doctor Who fandom at the point and it's like, wow, you got David Tennant to play Peter Vincent. That's gonna be interesting. And then yeah. I see the Chris Angelness of it and it's like, okay, I'll take a look. 
<laughs> and I I was still in the throes of 3D mania, and this was actually released and filmed in 3D. It was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh. But the strange thing was I heard this was one of the movies that's filmed in 3D that is, like, absolutely garbage in 3D. Oh. But, huh. Yeah. And, like, even watching it on, I, I rented it through Redbox when it finally came to disc. <laughs> and even watching, like, the opening credits, it's like, oh, I can see where you would, you, this is your your 3D thing where it's, like, the floating letters and I, oh. I see what you're doing there. But I do agree. The Ed and Charlie relationship is more endearing here. Yeah. Because, like, you know, you're watching that video of them hanging out as kids yeah. and charlie gets that interesting angle of trying to actually be cool so i i don't remember if they actually do i think they do repeat the you're so cool Brewster yeah, line they do like it makes a little more sense here and oh, it makes different sense in here yeah in the original is just like ed's busting his balls about it whereas here it's like no charlie's actually trying to fit in yeah. for a change yeah i think it definitely gets like high school dynamic better because also in the original everyone is the high school students are 30 and wearing tweed jackets. Um, yeah. We so, were in the Dawson's Creek age of casting here. Yes. Yes. Uh, so it, was, it felt a little more uh, real here. I mean, I wonder if it had just been a movie with a different title that happened to have that kind of rear window um, trope. I, w- I probably would maybe have a better, like a more positive opinion of it. It's just my, you know, attachment to the original and the the direct parallel Chris Sarandon to Colin Farrell, yeah, um, was not quite what I would have wanted. Did you have you seen the um, sequel to the remake? No, and I'm afraid to because I was angry that they never followed this one up, and it sounded like just another "Hey, we're going to remake Fright Night again, and it's going to be a female Jerry Dandridge this time." Like. Spelt different, spelt differently, and I'm trying to think if it's. I think it's this. Is it because it's a technically called Fright Night Part Two: New Blood, but it, from what I had heard, it's just another remake of the original. Well, no, no, it's. Um, I don't know if it's the same Charlie, but he goes to Europe, and uh, there is a professor there who is a female vampire. I don't know if she has any relation to um, the original Jerry. I'm trying to find out. Okay, so it doesn't look like he's in the sequel. Anton. No, they they did like different cast and I I may actually have to watch this now. You're convincing me here. I mean, if you can get it for free on TV, (laughs) I wouldn't pay more than $5 for it. If it's on Tubi, Um, then yeah. But it's, it's... It's yes, it's the female vampire, and it's it's like he, the Charlie character, is dating this girl who's like in purity into purity culture, and that comes into play because a virgin sacrifice is needed. Oh, it's four point three on IMDb. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Ooh. Yeah, it's a different. It's a different Charlie. Yeah. Um, and a different actress is playing Amy. I think DreamWorks just and Touchstone just kind of dropped the option at that point. It's like, well, hey, who who wants to make a sequel to Fright Night? You guys want to make a sequel, right? Right? Like, yeah. It it's. I mean, it's worth a watch. It has that like old European charm to it. 
Yeah, I, 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 as as much as I may be reticent with some things, like 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 you said, if I can just find this thing on Tubi, I will probably throw it on one afternoon and just see if it's any good. Another it, brilliant thing about streaming. Oh, probably. But that's another brilliant thing about all these streaming services. You get so many of these free with ad services that movies that nobody wants to put on on proper home video actually get that you actually get to see them instead of like there was a we discussed with another guest a couple weeks ago this old movie from the 80s called tape heads and it's oh. with uh john cusack and tim robbins like baby john cusack and tim robbins and it's been out of print on dvd since 2001 i think but you can find it on tubi or plex with ads and it's and it's a good transfer too like it looks good it's not just oh we transferred the vhs it's no they actually cleaned it up yeah yeah, it is. I, I don't. I don't think I could find Fright Night on a normal streaming thing. It was just on YouTube in its entirety. I think, yeah, I think they just pulled it because I remember not too long ago. I think when we started talking about doing this episode, I was looking. Okay, where's Fright Night? And it looked. I think at least maybe the 2011 remake was on Tubi, but one of them was. Uh, yeah, you know what? It was the original Fright Night sequel. I could find on YouTube, but not. I tried to oh, write yeah. that and it, it wasn't there. Um, and yeah, there actually, there is a documentary called, I think it's called You're So Cool, Charlie Brewster. And it's about the making of Fright Night. And Ooh. I've tried to get my hands on it. Um, but it's like, you have to like buy the actual video from a human being somewhere. Oh, um, but I think it's about the kind of independent way the movie was made and kind of cobbling it together and how it became a, a cult a cult favorite but like that's something i would pay to get oh yeah streaming just like, just like there's a wonderful documentary on the elm street series called never sleep again and it's like yes i think seven or eight hours i think i've seen that because i mean yeah. i grew up watching those movies yeah for, just, for good just... or for bad i mean i did watch them all <laughs> Yeah, well, that that's the, the flip side of the coin where you get to the point where you're popular enough for sequels and then eventually it's just, we have drained the well. How do we, I think we need a new nightmare here. Yeah, although I think Wes Craven's new nightmare is actually pretty decent uh, oh, compared, compared to the sequels that came before it. But I mean, I think, and then now we're just like remaking IP over and over and it's all sequels and it's it's quite sad. Yeah, and Fright Night was around the same time that they were trying to do that new sort of super serious Nightmare on Elm Street with like Michael Bay's production company, and I think it was a PG thirteen. Oh, well the the one that had um, the Rooney Mara one. Yeah, 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 oh, yeah. You know that actually was kind of interesting. Like they kind of went the route the the way of like, well, maybe he actually wasn't a child molester. And they, they they wrongly accused him and then murdered him. But then it turns out that he is. Which is like, yeah. All right, that's not as compelling a story, I don't think. It's probably more compelling to the, the that's probably what they did for the, the diehards. It's like, okay, we're going to play around with it a little because they, they basically, without putting too fine a point on it, did say, yeah, he, he was in the originals. Yeah. And then here it's like, okay, we can play around with it. Jackie Earl Haley is a great choice to sort of play that ambiguity. Yeah. And then there you go. Poor guy keeps getting cast as a uh, child molesters. Yeah. Or but... like the, the uber right wing superhero. Right. Yeah. But he's, he is really good in those roles, but 
like he's a great I've actor he is like i've seen him play chill and like uh oh what was it there was a fox show called human target where i think he was like a a, a chill computer hacker who like worked with this guy who was like a secret agent and oh. yeah he was he was like more fun there versus you know little children or yeah. watchmen or nightmare on elm street <laughs> yeah i actually imagine he probably is someone who could do comedy but he's oh, well. like if you ever get a chance to talk to him he is so much fun i got to talk to him when he was doing the the reboot of the tick oh. and he was very open about why watchmen never got a sequel and because it was studio, bad <laughs> because of the studio politics oh although i actually really loved watchmen the original the Zack snyder one oh okay that's but i do also i re i do also love the hell out of the hbo series yeah i think i think the hbo series was original and um had was in conversation with the original graphic novel in a way that i really like i don't i don't exactly know why i don't like the original watchmen but there's like it was very true to the comic book but like some for the for the most part but somehow didn't work yeah Zack snyder's kind of a a lover hate for most for like yeah. audiences at large because you know the man does the dawn of the dead remake and everyone loves him but yeah. then watchmen comes along and people are like eh. and then 300 kind of muddies the waters a little bit too but i think that's more the source and then these um dc movies yeah that is that is the ultimate litmus test yeah he's polarizing but yeah it well, just like just like trying to remake fright night after so many years uh, of dormancy you know you, you like one sequel and then i'm surprised they didn't try to go the tv series route with that especially in light of freddie and jason Voorhees. like you could have very easily done again anthology jerry dandridge yeah. comes out every week and just a new parable plays out and Maybe it's not only vampires. Like maybe there's other things afoot and we get to side with him for a little while. Yeah, especially because there was that like post-Twilight vampire boom where they were very big. Um, That's know, probably another reason why this was made. Yeah, I think so. I think there was definitely people cashing in on uh, vampires. They go away for 20 years and then they come back. And actually, I think with, with Anne Rice dying, I think we might have a small resurgence again. Yeah, especially with her, the new interview series coming on AMC. I'm very excited about it because that sounds like very capable hands. It does. And I forget who they cast as Lestat, but I'll, I'll never forget when they first announced that they were doing it for Hulu. Yeah. My wife is like, look, Dan Stevens. Dan Stevens has to be Lestat. I was oh, like, God. After him, because, okay, in the Beauty of the Beast, it's all remakes tonight. Because of the Beauty and the Beast remake. The opening where he is like the foppish prince who's being a brat. We're just watching this and she's like, oh my God, that's Lestat. He needs oh. to be Lestat. I don't think I, I even knew that they were casting it yet. So I think they, they cast it when they were like in the big, I think they're far along in development because I keep getting mobile ads on like the games I play where AMC plus is like interview with the vampire new series. Today or in general? today well in general uh, but it, like i saw it again today but they don't show any face or any footage it's just like a yeah. stock gargoyle in the corner and some smoke with the title i i know that Anne rice kind of had an issue when tom cruise was cast but once she saw him she liked him which is exactly how i felt i mean 
say what you will about Tom Cruise. I do think he is good in the role. His hair is ridiculous, but I he is very believable uh, oh, in yeah. that particular role. Oh, it is listed here. Interesting. Um, but it's such a good IP, uh, and I think done right. I mean, you, there's like ten books that they could turn into a TV show. I, I don't have AMC, so I'm going to have to get AMC when that show comes out. Yeah, that's the, 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 that's the only problem with streaming is it's so easy to think, I really don't need cable for anything. And then everything gets more factioned and AMC yes. has its own platform with Shutter that it's like you have to subscribe to it in order to really, you either have to have a cable subscription to get access or you need to pay extra. Yeah, that's where they get you. Unless they let you buy a season pass via Amazon, which for some shows yeah. that are good enough, I'd be willing to, to do. Well, when the Fright Night show happens, you we'll, we'll have to just get a season pass and then start doing like commentary weekly because, you know, everybody's just going to want to be in on that. <laughs> I don't I don't know if they'll make a show of it, but if they did, I would probably watch it. They, although it would really depend on who they cast to play Jerry. Have to be someone good. So who? All right. So since you're you're not a big fan of Colin, Fer- all right. So Colin Farrell, you weren't a big fan of. Were you? You said you were okay with David Tennant as Peter Vincent. Yeah, I think I think he was he was good. I mean the the scene where he he leaves his show and slowly starts starts taking off every single part of his costume, like the piercings, <laughs> the hair, the beard. I mean, he's funny. He's 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 actually good at comedy. I think that was the first time I saw him like profane as all hell. And he's just like adjusting himself and yeah. in the leather pants. He's like, oh, shagged her. She's rotten. And it's just like, yeah. doctor. Yeah. So who would you cast as Jerry Dandridge instead? Like if you had, if you were going to do this whole thing over and you had to replace Jerry Dandridge, who would you have thrown in there? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would kind of want someone that had that like dark, handsome sinister thing going um oh i can't think of anyone off the top of my head what if it was like uh the guy from madman or something you know Ooh, john ham yeah i think he would because he actually is quite funny but could also be serious and he's very kind of has a magnetic kind of quality to him um, yeah, and you would basically just be amping up Don Draper at that point, who pretty much kind of, he had his own version of glamour that he very much used on people. So that that wouldn't be too much of a stretch. No. No. See, I still, the thing that I did like about the newer Jerry Dandridge is I did like that they tried to go sinister and let Colin Farrell sort of be that cool sort of smart ass, but not sort of playing it up for for charm i guess like i liked the contrast of douche bro living next door as a vampire and somehow he just keeps kind of getting away with being a vampire yeah i mean i think that because we so frequently have vampires as a kind of erotic attractive thing it takes away from the fact that there are monsters um where they actually should seem like something inhuman embodying a body that happens to look human um and i think maybe colin farrell does that better i mean the parts where his like jaw is like opening up like that sort of thing um but people tend to prefer i think the more humanoid vampire which is basically like 
a person who doesn't age, who has powers, but happens to drink blood. And then that's very appealing. But that's actually not scary. I mean, I don't find vampires scary for the most part. It's like, I have these perfectly shaped fangs that can leave two perfect holes in your neck. And all I have to do is bite you and you are converted. And I like the that vampirism sort of moved towards the school of, no, the whole thing is I'm going to drain you of your blood and bring you to death's door. And then you have to choose to become and drink from a vampire's blood. Like that just makes more sense than just, I bet you, you're yeah. mine. Like a mosquito bite. Yeah. I mean, the, the basically the way they do an interview with a vampire where it's like a very angsty, dramatic choice of which thing you do. Oh, yeah. And then just the, the continual sort of languishing, like Louis languishing as a vampire after that is just so, it, it, it was just so atypical because especially in, I think that was 94 interview with the vampire came mm. out. And then mm. 87, you get Lost Boys. And Lost Boys was one yeah. of those things that definitely amped up sexy vampire town. Yeah. And that, that's probably why Fright Night 2 didn't do so well, because I think 2 was 88. Yes. So you're like riding on the coattails of Kiefer Sutherland and Alex Winter being vampires. And it's like, vampire bowling's not going to cut it anymore. Yeah. And Fright Night also was something that, or uh, Lost Boys was also that weird mixture of like comedy and uh, scary stuff. Yeah. Like that's, that, that probably was now, now that we're talking about it, that's probably a direct reaction to Fright Night being what it was because I'm, I'm going to, I'm trying to see how big of a hit it was. Oh, it made a lot of money. Yeah. I was looking at, I think like $24 million. Yeah. 25 on a seven to nine and a quarter budget. That's, that's eight. That's pretty good for, for eighties blockbusters. Although I am very curious now as to what it was going up against. It's something that I love to really look at. Like even as an entertainment journalist, I'd like to see what the competition was. Like other horror movies that came out that year? Oh, yeah. Let's see. Weekend box office for August 2nd. Back to the Future was still huge. Like Fright Night was number three behind Back to the Future and National Lampoon's European Vacation. Yeah, and those are like mega. Yeah. Mega hits. Well, Well, you know what Fright Night 85 just beat out? What? Weird Science. Oh, they opened the same weekend and it just beat it out. Yeah, that's kind of a going against the same audience. Maybe a, was oh, a, yeah. a good idea to release it then. That's kind of, it's funny because I'm looking at Fright Night 2011 and that was released in August as well. So that's, that's really interesting that they would kind of choose to go that closely to the original model. Uh, I wonder if they were just looking for like a summer. Oh yeah. And like, they know horror movies will bring in a lot of money, even though they don't necessarily get respect. Even a mediocre horror movie, I think makes a fair amount of money. Oh, and especially in the middle of August, like August is one of those months where if you are unsure about something, you can still test it. Like the, the, the market has become so weird because February used to be a dead month. And then John Wick and Deadpool kind of changed that. Oh, and especially with everything sort of running together now in the in the pandemic fueled era, yeah. Like I, Christmas weekend is is going to be a bloodbath this year. You've got Sing Two, 
Matrix Resurrections and The King's Man. And that's only a week after Spider-Man Far From Home. I mean, I'm guessing they're really hoping people will now go out to theaters. Um, oh, they'll go for, well, as we're seeing, they'll go for certain things. Spider-Man, they're definitely going to to go for because that's, that's kind of pre-programmed for everyone at this point. Yeah. Uh, but looking at Fright Night, the remake, its competition is a bit more interesting because the number one movie of that weekend was The Help. Oh, not the same audience. No, no. And then like the, the, the closest you could map up is Rise of the Planet of the Apes is number two that weekend. Mm-hmm. And then Fright Night just overperformed Final Destination 5, which had already been out for oh, a couple of weeks at that point. That is sad. I, I'm, that doesn't sound like um, the movie did very well. I don't remember people talking about this movie. The only people I know that wanted to see it are, were fans of the original yeah and that that was even probably even more of a well you know i'll i'll see what it looks like it's it, it probably yeah. wasn't a fervent oh wow they're really doing something with this i mean if they're if they're gonna remake any movie i like and i'm gonna automatically walk into it saying i that was a bad idea i'm still gonna go see it like yeah. to hate to hate watch it essentially but uh, i'm gonna want to see the comparison you know yeah that's another one of those wonderful sort of models that we have in the world of of binging like if something just looks the slightest bit weird oh it's on netflix cool i'm watching it captive audience yeah especially with covid i will binge a whole season of tiger king even though i think all of these people are despicable and the animals are are the real victims here but hey you know covid it's it's there therefore yeah i'll watch it yeah that's that's the new streaming motto for any network it's there we have content didn't say it was good (laughs) it's just content yeah, exactly. But yeah, that the margins were <clears throat> not as good to Fright Night, even with 3D. 30 million budget and a 41 million take worldwide. Worldwide, okay. Yeah, that's not good. I'm, I, yeah. I doubt the uh, 3D was really netting them anything. Yeah, and you would have thought, like, 2011, David Tennant's still on Doctor Who at this point. Maybe yeah. you would have thought that would have goosed the international numbers something fierce but it was only 22.7 versus 18.3 yeah i I think word of mouth is important for horror movies and like if you start if you're not if you're not hearing good things then yeah the the original probably wasn't a huge international crossover either so not back then i don't think yeah it's like american cult classic yeah so we are coming up on the end of our talk i would assume uh was is there any are there any final respects we would like to pay or final you know detractions we'd like to put out for either 85 or 2011's fright night uh i will say you know um i i liked jerry dandridge in the original chris sarandon so much that i'm patterning the villain in my next book on his image specifically him eating the apple uh wearing you know a cow neck sweater (laughs) (laughs) this is brilliant i've got i have like a research notebook of all my characters and you know with pictures that i pulled from the internet of like this is what the character looks like just pulled pictures from fright night for that character so um you know a sort of charismatic person who could hold people in thrall and i'm absolutely picturing him like jerry dandridge 
see, that was one of the two things I definitely wanted to touch base with you on because I saw that you're already in the middle of your next book. Yeah. And then, uh, which according to your website, I think it said 14%. Yes. I, I don't know if that's still accurate or. It's 15 today. Oh, you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen, 15% complete. Uh, Is there any chance that you might go back to Chloe and the world of never saw me coming? Or was that sort of a one-off like? Um, Unclear. I mean, my next book is something else. Um, I think it's not impossible that I would write a sequel. And a lot of people have asked me that and, and fans too. And the book sold pretty well. Um, I do think it lends itself to a sequel. I think if the TV show gets picked up, there's like a strong incentive to produce more books um, to fuel a TV show. Um, So I guess we'll see. I mean, in my head, I can see these characters going on and having all kinds of adventures. I mean, it's basically set up where you have a college campus and a Scooby gang. Well, you know, just have more people get murdered on campus and they have to solve it. Uh, I mean, the problem with sequels as a writer is that people want the same exact book, but for it to be different, which is physically impossible. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I, I'll honestly admit the big thing that really drove me into to wanting to ask about a sequel was just how it leaves Charlie and Chloe at the end. And mm. there's that sort of possible burgeoning romance, but also Charlie's got this really sweet romance Girlfriend. on the other end. And it's like, okay, do I go with the person that grounds me or do I go with the one that totally will burn the house down with me. Yeah. He's got the, the angel and devil on his shoulder kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but then again, that's, that's only part of what makes never saw me coming work. You know, I mean, this is just reader giving talk back at a Q and a, this is, I don't, I don't mean to be, you know, well, you know, this is what you really should have done with these characters. It's like, this is really just fanning, fanning out where it's like part of what was so good about it is the murder works. And it's not just, Chloe, because while she is that central character, you've got Andre and you've got Charlie and all these other viewpoints and just the characters are great, but I I guess the the stumbling block from my corner of the table would be, okay, is there another killer that's trying to pick them off for some sort of unknown reason? And it would have to be a good reason if they did. Yeah, I mean, I have thought of other plots. Um, I, ha- I have like a hundred pages of a of a different book with the same characters, and it, it would ha- it would have to be more of a detective story because I think this book comes with Chloe's built in revenge story, and I couldn't have another revenge story, and I can't use the yeah. the technique of like not knowing who the psychopaths are and then revealing them one by one. It would have to be something different, and um, the idea I had was a a mass murder occurring on campus and they have to, they each have their own motivation for solving it. But um, I was also kind of interested in doing a, one where everyone is snowed in at some location. So it's locked room or one where um, it feels like more of a noir feel like, I think it could be fun if there were other ones. I just, I just don't know when I will hypothetically be doing such books. Well, for the record, just I, I, that was just me being curious, but I'm still just looking forward to the next book with your author credit on it because I cannot thank you enough for Never Saw Me Coming being that much of a, a joyful read and just with wonderful characters to sort of dig into. And I, I thank you for that. And I thank you for your time this evening. Uh, uh, go ahead and, and plug. Is there anything else you'd like to plug besides the, the book? 
Um, I'd say if you, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at beer underscore Korean or Instagram beer Korean author, or, um, if you look on my website, beer I do blog quite a bit about, um, horror movies. I have some long form reviews on there, but also some stuff about writing. If you are, if anyone listening is a writer for some advice, um, and other random things on the blog. Well, thank you very much, Vera. And don't forget, Never Saw Me Coming is on shelves at all fine bookstores and libraries. Don't forget the libraries because they never forgot you. Oh, they never forgot. (laughs) Thank you so much for your time this evening. Yeah, thank you for having me. Vera Kurian, ladies and gentlemen, again, I feel like I'm I'm making friends on this show. We're making (laughs) friends on this show. Just the, the way that the conversations go here. And... It was just, you know, I really am looking forward to, fingers crossed, either a movie or a series based off of her book, Never Saw Me Coming. I have to mention it again because that was the whole reason I suggested yep. her as a guest on the show. It is the, it is just a great read. I listened to the audiobook and the the the, the narrator, her name is mentioned in, in the discussion, just pitch perfect for this. Think of the love child of Patrick Bateman and Amy from Gone Girl going to college that's basically all you need to know about this this main protagonist. It is so good. Ah, I haven't I haven't read or listened to it yet. Though, so I'll have to do that too. But I have to say, I am a little. I mean, I'm upset when we're, when I when I can't be there for anything we do because, of course, uh, I want to be there for everything, and I'm sure you want to be there for everything too. But Fright oh, Night, the original Fright Night, is one of those classics for me because, again, it's one of those films that yeah, a lot of people have seen, and a lot of people know about if they're kind of in the horror scene, but. Again, I was a kid and my father started introducing me to films like, oh, well, come watch The Evil Dead, son, and watch this. And Fright Night's one of those that, you know, Tom Holland, Fright Night isn't as solid for how well it's put together compared to where the original Child's Play in my mind. But it's, again, it fits into those kind of 80s horror films that people think are just like kind of fun or you're not even, if they're not scary or that, just like a, a romp or whatever like that. But when you when you kind of pick it apart, there's a lot more serious well-done filmmaking behind it compared to a lot of these big blockbusters that come out oh yeah and then again like i was discussing with vera in the 85 original it really does feel like they were a couple studio notes the final product was a couple studio notes separated from a total subplot where evil ed is in love with charlie Mm. and just the way that they weave that subtext in there and for as much of a monster as Jerry Dandridge is, the way that he welcomes Ed and the way that he looks at him in that one sequence and just talks to him. And Chris Sarandon's, Chris Sarandon is one of the most hidden gems in the entire world. Yes, yes. You folks would also remember him from The Princess Bride, uh, the original Child's Play, uh, maybe Tales from the Crypt, Bordello of Blood. You also may know him from... Uh, the Fright Night remake is the guy in the car uh, yep, on the highway. The gets taken out on the highway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, again, you know, for based on even for 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 her enjoyment and your enjoyment and love of the remake, I I didn't dislike the remake, but I'm not thrilled with the remake personally. I I, I don't care about changes made for that because I, I want to see something different, like you were saying earlier about not yeah. doing the same exact thing. Um, where in many ways, you know, to my best recollection at this point, you know, it's, it's the Peter Vincent character maybe that takes the biggest swing out somewhere else. Um, and also some of the relationships here and there, but that the Peter Vincent character is where 
the big change comes and it's it's funny i think and uh, uh you know whether whether how much you guys talk about it or not is that you know because that's when david Tennant was still on the doctor who high I did and bringing him in was supposed to be this big thing and i just don't think it was seen that way for, well, for general you, for general audiences you look at that cast and that is definitely a 2011 cast like anton yelkin was still he was sort of still in between doing stuff like star trek but also still doing indies like charlie bartlett or or thoroughbreds eventually like he yeah. was still he was still on the rise and we lost him way too damned early because i think you know I, I from what i remember he was preparing to move into directing like i think we would have gotten just this wealthy career from him and i you know i loved him as the new charlie brewster i like the sort of changing of the interplay between him and christopher mintz plots is uh evil ed or he's not even evil it's just his ed in this new movie yeah but he's he's technically almost someone feels like a more like quote-unquote evil ed for getting the moniker something. yeah yeah out of the out of the two he feels like the more evil one despite the fact that stephen jeffries just chews that scenery and that scene yeah, well, with Peter i should say that he feels when he becomes evil he's a lot more laid back than than our natural ed when he before he's evil <laughs> yeah no definitely and then I, I still think Colin Farrell was a, a, a fun choice to play the newer, deadlier, sure. sort of less romantically, less tragically romantic Jerry Dandridge. Well, you know, Colin Farrell is, is one of these people for me who's like, a, he's, he's one or the other. He's either win it or lose it. There's very few for me that he's kind of rides the middle. This is more of a definitely rides the middle. I don't think, personally, yeah. I don't think he bought anything to it that was exceptional out of the box. Like the Colin Farrells I love are of course the in Bruges Colin Farrell or even the horrible bosses Colin Farrell. Um, or but, going for it. Yeah, but the, that's the thing about like in Bruges because in Bruges I think is by far, you, I don't think you can never tell me he does anything better than that beforehand or even coming up in the future because that's delicate because while he's kind of going for it and kind of being flared out of the box, there's that damage to him that's there and like and you can oh, yeah. see it and it's just like it's like bubbling up and it's not there that's impressive that's real and that's 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 what you got to do when you when you we don't have that on the roll if we don't have that on the list that definitely needs to be on the list but i could swear it's on one of our lists probably yeah i think, I think all the donut brothers movies are <laughs> but yeah like i i don't know i was just really sad that this Fright Night never got a proper sequel. Although mm -hmm. after talking with Vera, I might just, since it's a low stakes investment, I might just check out Fright Night Part Two, New Blood, which is the- oh, You never the saw it? No, no, the newer movie. Oh, the wait, wait, whoa, movie. whoa, whoa. I didn't know about, there's a newer movie? No, the Fright Night, the 2011 Fright Night, they made a, a direct-to-video part two. I apologize, everybody. We are recording this before I have listened to the whole interview which is why I'm surprised. I did not know this existed. No, well, not many people do. I mean- You know what, maybe I'll cut it out. Maybe I'll pretend like you knew. I'll cut know. all that out. Uh, it makes you human, but we know, oh no, I know Fright Night Part Two exists. Okay. I, I watched that because that is so hard to watch legally, as I've heard some people put it. I saw the whole thing on YouTube because people have put rips of it on there. Oh, okay. And I liked it. I, it is a pretty serviceable sequel, it's, and it's good. Yeah, I don't think it was a great film, and it's definitely you know, one of those films just like ads there. But I remember seeing it when it came out, and kind of like, yeah, I don't mind this. This is fine. It's fun. Um, Vampires bowling, man. They bring werewolves. Bowling. You know, it's like, hey, cool. 
Not, oh, not just pulling the same trick again. Let's bring in another kind of creature. Yeah, good. Go for it. That would have been fantastic is if they had some sort of, if Fright Night became an anthology series where it's just different sort of creature of the week and maybe Peter Vincent and Charlie have to go. Apple, your, Apple TV, we're here. There's your dark universe, Universal. Ooh, I, I, that would be really interesting. Like Russell Crowe is Peter Vincent? No, no. I, I think he could do it. I'll be or honest, maybe? you know what I want to see is Peter Vincent. And it's not just because oh. of Last Night in Soho, but I want to see Terrence Stamp as Peter Vincent. Dude. For a minute there, I thought you were going to say Matt Smith, but- No, no. I, here's my thing. Good one. I love Terrence Stamp. I'm absolutely in love with that man. And yeah. I hadn't seen him in anything for a while. So when I saw him on the list for last night, I saw him like, oh, oh, wow. Okay, great. And then you just, and again, it's like, you see him and he's like, oh, just put him in everything that's ever made. I feel like we need to get ahead of the curve and talk about last night in Soho because I feel like even upon initial release, that just got lost and it's so damn good. And we'll see, maybe we'll see if we can, Edgar's uh, schedule is finally flattened out for us. Cross all of the fingers for that. That's like a three hour conversation waiting to happen. Yeah, it's gonna be a lot of stuff to talk about. Oh yeah, because you know what? Uh, I think it's safe to say, is this gonna be the last episode of the new year or something else going up before this? No, this will be the, probably the, the first episode of the new year. Okay, so then we'll, we'll cut that little question out and move into, yeah, because, you know, here or we second. are. It could be first or second. Yeah, sorry. Because here we are, you know, 2022 is upon us. And as such, just a, our first full year that we will be operating. Uh, but after all of the episodes that we have done, I think we're on the, on the crest of 30 episodes or so. I just, well, you know, yeah, to, it's going to be, yeah, we're, we're, we're over it at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I would just like to say this has been so far and I believe it will continue to be because we're us a rewarding experience to be here with you, Matthew, to talk about these films with the people that we get and the films that we've got. And yeah, we're, you know, let's bring, we're bringing them back people. Just, just buckle in folks. Back. They've been here for years and years. Sorry for that old cliched callback. <laughs> Who cares? I mean, the fact that we've even mentioned Fright Night Part 2 is something that I'm very happy about because that is definitely an overdue rental because, again, is it, the, is it like a Bafo sequel that like outdoes the original? No, but it keeps things going at a good pace and it's a fun watch. Yeah, it really, it really was. I mean, look, I'll be honest with you, I hardly remember it. I do remember the bowling scene. <laughs> Actually, it's very funny. Um, but I, I, I don't I remember it as well as I well, again, also because now I'm, of course, I'm not forgetting his full name, the actor Jeffrey. Because to me, like people, people now will only know him as Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Um, um, I don't know who that is. Uh, you, you've seen Napoleon Dynamite. Well, the actor. I've never seen Napoleon Dynamite, but I know who you're talking about. Okay, yeah, well, because he plays the werewolf in the in the in Fright Night Part Two. But for hmm. me, growing up, he's Laszlo Hollyfield from Real Genius, and so getting him from Laszlo into this, you're like, oh, my childhood is like the greatest thing ever in the world. Uh, so yeah, um, I I don't know why I even started talking about that. I just wanted to talk about Laszlo Hollyfield now. <laughs> Because we've never, because we're just we're digging into the overdue canon here, my friend. It's just there's you you would, it's amazing 
how many of these movies qualify. Is Real and Genius an overdue rental, Mike? I'm tempted to say it is because even with Val Kil- like Real Genius and Top Secret, as much as we heard about them, I think they might be overdue and a lot of people don't remember him for those movies. You want you want you want to know the surprise person I want to get for 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 uh, Real Genius? Yeah. Um, hold William on. Atherton? Sorry? William Atherton? No, well, that would be great too. Oh um, yeah. Anything for William any any William Atherton authoritarian role. I want Die Hard 2. I want to get I'm going to say a name. I don't know if I don't know if you realize it that he's in that he's in the movie. Dean Devlin. What? Dean Devlin is the kid with the glasses, the friend in the uh, the one with the, you know, oh, how long is the fake ice going to last? I can't remember his, his character name. He's like, well, you know, at this rate, that's Dean Devlin. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, for those of you who may be blanking on the name Dean Devlin, Dean Devlin, he was an actor before he went into a career as a producer and worked on a couple of cult classics like Stargate, Independence Day, and the Godzilla 1998 remake. Yeah, pretty much anything. Um, uh, Roland Emmerich. Roland, I don't know thank you, Roland Emmerich made, yeah. I don't um, know. He, of course he does other there. things too, but that's, that's where his name started to come to prevalence uh, for both yeah. Roland and Dean. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I kind of want to have Dean Devlin on to talk about Real Genius. That would be insane. William Atherton would be great too, uh, you know. Uh, Trent, there's something, there's something else William Atherton would be great for. I mean, there's plenty of stuff you'd be great for, but there's something else I'm thinking about too. My brain's now like flust, fluttering into all these thoughts. Well, I mean, there is a, Val Kilmer. There is a random... Tr- oh, I, I wish we could. Yeah. Well, uh, you can look at the kid who played Mitch. I don't know what the hell he did. True. And then speaking of William Atherton, I do remember there is this wild, like in back in my office office job days, or maybe it was even later when I went into professional journalism, there was a trailer reel for like MCA Universal VHSs that were like coming out that season. And I forget that, I think it's called Buried Alive. There's a movie where he's like this sleazy guy who's like sleeping with this guy's wife behind his back. And the guy I think is Tim, Tim Matheson. And he convinces the wife, was like, look, we poison him, bury him, he's dead, we can run off. And then, you know, of course he doesn't die. Mm. And he's like the sleazy romantic lead. And it's like, I would love to hear like, after all this time playing these like pencil neck authoritarians or reporters or all these people with problems, he gets that. Like, how was getting that on top of Walter Peck or- Well, he got got typecast after after Ghostbusters was the problem. It it kind of unfortunate for him because I do, I would have liked to seen him do, he does, he's done stuff, but I'd like to see him do more different things, yeah. Sorry, sorry, um, sorry. But well. yeah, Fright Night Part Two. I mean, if anybody wants to go seek it out, it's out on the internet. Uh, and the thing that I was gonna, that's what I was gonna say. One of the reasons that I love doing this show with you and the subject matter that we've chosen is because Fright Night Part Two should not be, it shouldn't be in, uh, incredibly hard to get a hand on, even if you just put it on Plex free for streaming, like yeah. tape hang. Like I can't get a physical copy for tape heads without shelling out some dough. Let's but bring it back. Then, what did you say? Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. I mean, it's that's probably overdue rentals. Let's bring it back. Let's bring so, bring them back. And so with that, cross off Fright Night 1985 and Fright Night 2011 from your overdue rentals list. Make sure you go see them. Mike, where can people find us? 
Um, where did I put my, I need to grab my notebook. For yeah, something. I don't remember anymore either. <laughs> it's been so long since we've done this show. Noobs! I remember when we were fresh new hosts and the world was so promising. You could have all the licorice. Don't put you me back on. in the closet. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, as the 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 reigning poobahs slash counterattendants at Overdue Rentals, the rental shop where we imagine nothing but greatness, you can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rentals Show, on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. And if you want to send us love letters, laundry lists, and of course, your own suggestions for overdue rentals we need to put on these lists, overduerentals at gmail.com is our mailbox. Also, don't forget to find us on your podcast platform of choice, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and wherever else you get your quality ear hole material. Please rate, review, and subscribe so the rental counter can stay open and we know uh, what's coming in the Dropbox. Mike, as Matthew. always, it's a pleasure. Oh, it's an honor, sir. Welcome to the new year, this new age, the new epoch of overdue rentals. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.